with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. This podcast is first and foremost about learning. We will learn about the different avenues for success in biotech, healthcare, and related science fields through conversations with startups, researchers, and policymakers, CEOs, experts, you name it. We're going to have it on this podcast so you can learn about the different ways people are achieving things in the industry and how you can do the same. Or just learn about great science topics. I consider there are two main types of episodes. The first type is what I consider a case study or mini biographies where I communicate with a person about a specific topic, usually what they're trained in or have experience in, so you can get a sense of who they are, what they do, and what they're passionate about. And that usually comes with a a lot of advice at the end. The second type is a symposium topic, or a group topic where I interview a bunch of guests around a central theme, such as like how to get venture capital for a biotech company, how to affect change in Congress. That's going to be a fun one how to eradicate an illness. Tune in every Monday for email blasts if you've signed up for them at my website, Learning with Lowell, to get book recommendations, website recommendations. I mean, really, you're going to get a lot of content from that every Tuesday for new episodes. And every Thursday, I'm going to do a blog post as well. And we have a Facebook, a Twitter. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn. Basically, device connects to the internet. You'll be able to get these podcasts. Please leave a review and tell everyone, please and thank you. Today we're joined with Erica and Andrew Barnell, brother and sisters who founded Genoscopy. We're going to get into their background, where they developed the company, and much, much more in this episode. Check the show notes for hyperlink timestamps so you can jump around as needed. And we're going to jump right into it because they answer exactly what they're about within the first two minutes. So why summarize when you can hear it for yourself? Thank you for joining me. I was reading an article on Medium, and it said that the idea for the technology came from when you were doing a rotation. I am an MD-PhD candidate at WashU. So we start our years at, in training as a kind of pre-doctor. So we end up going onto the floors in the hospital and you get to see a lot of patients and talk to a lot of people and, and listen and answer questions that physicians pose and be super wrong about them. But what I really got to enjoy doing was talking to patients and, and seeing what was going on with them and, and learning their stories. And one patient in particular that I met, she was really young. She's only 52 years old, but she presented to the hospital with very late stage colon cancer. Now, I don't know much about medicine, but I I did know that that you're supposed to get screened for colon cancer early on in life and and we catch it early. And and usually it has a really good prognosis, but I kind of learned that because she was diagnosed in such late stage that she didn't have many options. And it's heartbreaking to me to think that we live in an era where we can sequence the human genome and we can change genetic information, but we can't catch patients early for colorectal cancer. So I kind of use that as a synthesis to try to find a solution for for this patient. And that's where Genoscopy was really founded. So I looked at some of the technology at WashU and we do a lot of research in the microbiome space and and some of that technology I thought really directly applied to this compliance issue. And so we pulled that technology out of WashU and started the company to see the feasibility of using some of this microbiome related research to solve colorectal cancer screening. Excellent. Was it like you're at dinner one day? Are you really like talking about this? And Andrew's like, you know, we can make a business out of this. How'd that conversation go? We have a really interesting kind of relationship. So I I'm always talking about science at the dinner table. And Andrew's always kind of synthesizing that into a commercialized, commercializable opportunity. And so yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this patient, I'm talking about the research that's going on at WashU that could solve it. And he's sitting in the background saying, Oh, have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? Do you know about the regulatory issues? Do you know how much it would cost to do a preliminary study? So eventually, you know, it just it just made sense to to bring him on board as kind of the captain of, of the business aspects to really pull the, the research out of the ivory tower and make it into a product that we can provide to our patients. What caught your eye, Andrew? At the time, I was doing something totally different. I was doing finance in New York, but was actually heading to get my MBA in healthcare management and to try to start a business in the healthcare space. And I think the thing that caught my eye about the healthcare space was that, you know, no matter what you're doing, you have sort of the dual mandate of the job, but you're also doing something to help patients. So when Erica had the idea to build a better non-invasive test to help prevent 
colorectal cancer. That resonated with me. And the more we dug into it on on the business side, on the commercial side, and on the regulatory side, it all seemed to make sense. So it, it seemed like a great opportunity to start a business. As Erica described, like this is something that happens kind of routinely as she finds really interesting science things and you deconstruct it or make it into a business either just as a, as a conversation. I imagine like that's happened quite quite often. Was there anything like really special about this that made it seem that this is the one, you know, all the other conversations, oh, they were pretty good ideas, but this one had the best potential to maybe help the most people, really like, struck a nerve with you guys. Like, was there something particularly special that drew this one to attention? Yeah, it's, it's so funny because people always ask, you know, where did you come up with this idea? And it's such a great idea. And it seems so logical when we describe the story. But I can say that there are 10 other business ideas that we came up with that, you know, it, it became an idea and we it liked it and we're excited about it. But for, for one reason or another, it, it didn't come to fruition. And I think Andrew just mentioned that we kept digging a little bit deeper, digging a little bit deeper, validating the technology, trying to pull resources together, trying to initiate a pilot study, and really everything just kept working. So I feel like our mentality is we just keep pushing forward ideas that we're really passionate and excited about. And if it pans out, then it's it becomes you know a company. And that's where Genoscopy started. Yeah, and, and from my perspective, you know, speaking a little bit to, because, you know, I, I was, both were thinking a lot about a lot of different opportunities, a lot of different things we could do. One of the things that struck me as cool about platform technology that we're working with is this is just something that no one had ever done before. You can look out there in, in the scientific literature and host analysis of RNA transcripts in stool is something that people tried and totally failed. And the reason people tried it is because it's really a tremendous platform to evaluate gastrointestinal health. It has the opportunity to change the way we treat people, change the way we diagnose disease. And, and the fact that we had a technology that initially we thought could solve all of those problems across a wide variety of disease states, the opportunity just seemed too good to pass up. So you found, found the opportunity, but I'm always curious, the foundation that gives people the opportunity to do things. If you if you didn't know business, you know, it wouldn't have happened. If, if Erica didn't know science, it wouldn't have happened. I'm just curious. So Erica has is in an MD, PhD program, right? And you got an MBA. What is with your family and being overachievers? Like, what, what, is, what is with that? Is there is there like... I told my parents that we really need a patent lawyer to complement our, our skills, but they said that it's a little too late in the game. <laughs> it's really nice that we're we have complementary kind of personalities that allow us to get along very well but then we have separate very separate skill sets i always joke with andrew that that the first time i, I gave him a pipette and lab that he broke it um and i think the first time he gave me an excel spreadsheet and asked me to make a waterfall of some financials i just started bawling so <laughs> You know, but but we get along so well and, and we can stay up till twelve thirty in the morning running experiments and, and working together and not get sick of each other. So I don't know how we got so lucky, but we did. And I also think at the end of the day, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily take an advanced degree. It it doesn't take any certain background. I think it just takes someone identifying a need. And I think oftentimes it's someone identifying their own need. You know, Erica was doing her rotations at Barnes and just saw a problem. And then having the resolve to say, I'm going to solve that. And I think regardless of background, if you put in the time to really figure out what the problem is and tailor a good solution to fix that problem, I think it's something that anyone can do. And definitely, I always, I always feel that people tend to make their own walls, like put a wall up and say, that's why I can't do something. And I think that kind of echoes your point pretty strongly, Andrew, in that it's, you don't necessarily have to wait for a piece of paper to say, oh, you can go, you can start working today to build the skills to build yourself, you know, connections, whatever that is, so that if you do need that piece of paper, like maybe to practice medicine, <laughs> you need the, the MD and whatnot. But for, for the most part, you can start working on your dream the very same day that you thought about it, if you have that inclination. And I think that's really important for listeners to grab onto, that they're not just constantly sitting there thinking, oh, that could have been me, or I should be working on this. And you get up and do it. And I think that the one story that Andrew told me from his experience at Google is, is he said that his teacher described the best entrepreneurs as those who really don't have good degrees, those who don't have MBAs, those who don't have these um, kind of advanced credentials. They're, they're felons. They're individuals who 
you know, really don't have much to fall back on or, or, you know, they don't have anyone investing in them. So they have to invest in themselves. And, and I think that kind of resonated with me because, you know, I I could very easily just kind of go to med school and go along my way and I would be fine. But doing something in entrepreneurship is a little bit more difficult and it (laughs) constantly kind of going against something that is safe, risk averse. So I, I think it's, it's, it should be known that, you know, you can, anyone can do this and it's just a matter of putting in the effort. There's a principle, if if you guys know your Greek history, where when Agamemnon, Agamemnon, that is, that's such a weird name to begin with, but when he was trying to destroy Troy, he, when his soldiers were being malcontents, he burnt all their ships so they'd fight harder. To to some extent, you just gotta, you know, build a, burn your ships and then you will. You want to take the island, burn the boats, I think is the quote, right? Yeah. Or have a Trojan horse, I guess. So that's probably pretty helpful. (laughs) We can, yeah, we can, we need to find a Trojan horse and then we can burn all the boats and then make a great company. We can probably convert some of the boats. They probably had a really bad order of operations there. Probably should deconstruct (laughs) some of the boats first before you burnt them. Because then that's just a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to hear what... I imagine you guys are working pretty closely every day, right? What's something that surprises you? You guys talk and like have those dinners, but then when you see it in practice, when you see Andrew working or you see Eric working, what's something that surprises you? Something that maybe makes you proud since you guys are brother brother and sister. There's something that I didn't realize how smart Erica was at or how driven in this arena or or Andrew was really creative in doing this widgety thing. You know, whatever. Was Was there something that after working really closely together that you noticed that made you kind of proud or like stand out about the other? The one thing that really came to mind was we had presented a conference and I I think I did the poster. And, and so I said, Andrew, you take the presentation. And he got up there and gave his pitch. And I've heard that a hundred times before, but we're at a conference. It's a scientific conference. And so I started thinking, you know, I don't know how he's going to do on the questions. <laughs> he's a business guy, you know, and, and he's used to giving business pitches to investors. And so obviously they come out with these tough questions about germline variants and the, the specific genes of interest that we're looking at and the, the technological aspects of protocols. And he just nailed it, you know, and, and I think one individual at some point asked Andrew where he went to medical school. And I think that just shows a level of dedication to understanding the field, understanding our technology, you know, not relying on the rest of the team to understand it and and just assuming that we're correct. But he really just wanted to know everything about our company himself. And it really showed in that conference and, and made me really excited to have him as a, a partner. Yeah, and, and and I can give mine as well. You know, I, I think it's it's gonna go towards something on the science side as well, but I have no background there. And so oftentimes I wh- whether or not it, it comes off as, as I'm knowledgeable or not, sometimes we approach things, whether it's an experiment gone wrong or whether it's a really, really difficult scientific problem where there's no research out there, there's no reference point because it's never been done before. And Erica's ability to understand those things, determine the next experiment that's going to make it work her grasp of genetics and genomics particularly the at the young age of of 27 truly astounding to me great to have her on our team Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> uh, Erica, that this is all it's all recorded. So if you ever need a, a pick me up, you can, you can listen to this. <laughs> to me. I'll listen to it before I go to bed at night. That was so sweet. Thanks. You can put it as your ringtone as well. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone else can hear. <laughs> Andrew, you're probably. I, I wish I didn't say it. That's <laughs> fine. It's out there. I believe it. So. <laughs> when it comes to the actual technology, how how big of an impact compared to exists today? How big of a difference? How many lives potentially will it save? How many lives will it potentially affect? Yeah, so I think what's what Andrew's kind of always said is that a quarter of, of the U.S. population is affected with gastrointestinal disease and millions of people are struggling with GI disease each year. And only real solution that doctors have for patients that present with gastrointestinal distress is direct visualization with a colonoscopy. And that requires bowel prep, a very invasive procedure, sedation, and a lot of time off work and a a lot of expense. And so what I like to say is that we're really not reinventing the wheel in terms of creating kind of a therapeutic or creating something that is a different product, but we're looking at GI disease in a different way. So it's kind of like the early explorers, they had telescopes and they were looking at ships and they were looking at things on the ground. And one day an an astronomer, you know, 
tilted it up towards the ceiling. And that was astronomy. And so what I, what I think that we're doing is we're just visualizing gastrointestinal distress and gastrointestinal disease in a very novel way. And that allows us to provide better and more appropriate care to the patients and hopefully improve outcomes for those individuals. And just an example, in, in colorectal cancer screening alone, it's the second deadliest cancer out there. 50,000 people in the U.S. die from it every year. And about 70% of those cases, so 35,000, are diagnosed in late stage. The primary driver of those late stage, colon- uh, sorry, late stage diagnoses is that people just don't get screened and you don't catch it early. So by providing easy to use, cheap, non-invasive alternative for colorectal cancer screening, you're gonna help drive up compliance for the 35 million Americans that just aren't up to date with their screening. And by catching those cancers in the polyp stage or in the earlier stage cancer, as opposed to late stage cancer, not only are you going to save costs and, and make things a lot more enjoyable for patients, but you're going to save a ton of lives. And colorectal cancer is just the tip of the iceberg. Feel that the technology is applicable to really everything within the category of gastrointestinal health, from Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, to irritable bowel syndrome. We think this is just the start. So uh, to take a, a step back, is there with the screening technology that you guys have developed, is there a particular type is there, was there a specific thing that was like, it was really good at pre- pre- detecting like that or, or am I misremembering? Cancer, colorectal cancer is unique in that it typically follows a, a specific trajectory. So you have a dysplastic interface in the lining of your colon and that turns into a polyp or a precancerous adenoma that is not malignant, but has the potential to transform again and become a malignant cancer that can really impact your prognosis. And so this process develops over seven to 10 years. And that's why colonoscopies are really effective because you can give an individual colonoscopy once every 10 years and catch early polyps, excise them, and then the patient is completely fine. So that's really what the gastrointestinal physicians are looking for is a non-invasive test that can identify these precancerous adenomas. Previous attempts to diagnose precancerous adenomas with non-invasive methods um, in the stool or in the blood have been really unsuccessful. So as an example, Cologuard, who's out there, they do an exceptional job of identifying cancer at 92%, but their detection of advanced adenomas is only 42%, and their detection of smaller adenomas is even lower than that. And so that was really our value proposition. And, And one of the things that we wanted to do was create a test that can leapfrog that technology and have a really high sensitivity for precancerous adenomas. And so in biopsy studies of the colon and then also in our preliminary trials, we've attained a really high sensitivity that's almost double that of Cologuard and other non-invasive tests on the market. And that's really where our value proposition lies. I imagine you've been telling physicians and stuff about this. What has their response been like? We're still in the early stages. There's still a lot to prove out. But when we say, hey, we can get an 80 to 90% sensitivity for precancerous polyps using a non-invasive screening test, pretty much the, the response across the board is, I would order that test all day long. <laughs> you know, how soon can you get it onto the market? And so there's obviously a process for that. But the reception is you get this test to work and on the market, I'm going to be a user of it. And how far away are we? It's going to take another three to four years. We have uh, two more trials to run. And then there's the FDA approval process that we'll have to go through as well. What does that look like? You know, for people who haven't, you know, conducted a clinical trial or had to do that type of like business management, like what does it... What does it what does it actually look like to run a company like this? Like on a day-to-day basis? Like what is if you could like take a snapshot, that'd be somewhat indicative. You can you can make it absurd to illustrate the point, but like what what does an actual day look like? What are some of the things that you, you guys have to really think about and, and work on to get to that level or to that stage, you know, of completing it? Running the large FDA approval study that we'll have to do, which has not started yet, is a ten thousand patient prospective clinical trial. So there's definitely gonna be a lot of growth and building infrastructure over the next 12 to 18 months as we head that direction. What the company looks like on a day-to-day basis today is really just so much going on in so many different areas. You know, transitioning from 
work into work in the lab to analysis of data to planning follow-on studies to the whole other side of the business which is more of the back office and planning and business development we're a really small team we have two full-time and, and three part-time people and so to run a run a company that's that's doing what we're doing it takes a lot and it's spread out across not a lot of people what are your thoughts erica yeah i'm i'm, I'm trying to gather them they <laughs> The, the day-to-day is so different um, depending on the things that we're doing. And I, what I find different about company work versus schoolwork or my PhD or my MD is that it's so much of a roller coaster and you have to do pretty much everything. Um, and so like Andrew mentioned, it's, you know, we're putting out fires every day in terms of just kind of dealing with the things that come up, but also trying to move in a specific direction and not lose focus on the long-term goals. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when you're going through it every day, it sometimes feels like we're really kind of not moving very quickly. But then, you know, I think a couple of days ago, we were reflecting on an old pitch deck or, or an old business plan and just kind of laughing at, at kind of the things that, that we were, were doing before that, we've so dramatically improved. So it, it feels like we're moving slow at times, but we're just, I feel like we're making so much progress every day and in so many different directions. It's, it's really fun. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine like from a, from having, a, you know, having dinner or whatever with your brother to, you know, having these types of concerns or, or e- even like the, even like a, a hard day would be kind of like a nice thing. Cause you've built it, you know, like it's like a child or something. That's something that no one can ever take away from you. So I imagine there's like a great pride and like, every facet of it. I think the level of ownership over something that you're building, this wouldn't exist without you. The the highs associated with things going right and progress are tremendous. And I think are above and beyond anything you can get in any other type of job or, or any other endeavor. But comes along with that is absolutely right. It is your baby. And when something doesn't go right, it hurts equally as much. And so I think that's part of it. And certainly part of the life of being an entrepreneur in an early stage startup is that the highs are high and the lows are low. But at the end of the day, what you said is exactly right. And you're building it. And I think there's something special about that. The I don't know, I don't know why this specific thing <laughs> popped in my head, but I just thought the ugliest baby is still beautiful to the parents. Like <laughs> so like even if it's like going bad, even though like, you know, who cares about what your baby looks like, but like to you, like it's an it's an amazing accomplishment. Not that your company is an ugly baby, but like I was just, I always think like, what's the worst? And then like, I hope for the best a lot. But like, that was like a weird thought that ran through my head. We are, we are in the stool prep industry. So we understand those kinds of jokes. So, may, so maybe a smelly baby. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. Um, I, I do not feel as bad now. So the, I think, I believe uh, some business questions. An earlier statement was that you proprietary information came from Washington University. Is that correct? Uh, some of the preliminary work was developed at WashU. Yeah. How, how does, how did, uh, maybe, I don't know which one to ask you. I assume it's Andrew, but who, and I don't know why I pointed at Andrew's picture when I said that, but how does that process go about? Like, what does that process look like to get like WashU to allow you guys to allow, to, to have access to the, the ability to use that, uh, some of that preliminary stuff so you can launch off and build much more larger things from it. Yeah, it's it's a process for sure. And Erica's the one that actually went through most of it as she was at WashU, but I certainly know the answer. It's most universities have lots of researchers, many of them grant funded, doing really cool translational research all the time and filing patents and and a lot of that stuff sits on the shelf and universities have offices of technology transfer tech uh, tech transfer and we went through the tech transfer office at WashU and they have something called the quick start license which is meant to be a streamlined way to take technology that they have and get it out in the hands of people that want to take it and do cool things with it and so we went through the process with them of of doing that and at the end we own the technology. I think there can be some red tape associated with that sometimes, but there are really a ton of opportunities out there to take some of the really cool things that researchers are doing at, at universities and take them out into the commercial space. And I think I've Andrew mentioned that I have, uh, or I went through this process. Um, I think Washington University is light years ahead of some other institutions in terms of recognizing that value. So Holden Thorpe, who's the provost, Emery Toker, who was the director of the Scandalera Center, 
they have been champions in terms of trying to put WashU on the map in terms of entrepreneurship. And they were the leaders of this quick start license that makes it really easy for entrepreneurs to pull technology out of WashU. And they got their hands dirty in terms of helping us and making us one of the first companies that, that came out of, of the med school who were students. And so I, I applaud their efforts in terms of trying to bring down some of the red tape that, that we know is pertinent and necessary, but they did a really exceptional job. Well, it's good that there's people excited and trying to help like versus like getting in, <laughs> getting in the way. If you, if you can have either, it's always good to have help. Um, actually, I was talking to someone earlier today and they said there's a, a, a website called iBridge where you can, you can actually like it aggregates all, all, all like university well, most, you know, whoever's a part of the program, they aggregate all the patentable stuff that you can like license or like get access to. And you can like talk to them, like send them emails straight from there or get the information so you can like do that. Like, I think that's like kind of fan- fantastic. I, I It's one of the things I learned in the last week, like that process of like, you can just reach out and like have a conversation and it's not that high pressure. Like you just like ask questions. Moving in the right direction for sure. I mean, I, I think academia and business have, tried to be at odds for such a long time, but it just doesn't make any financial sense. So I think we're moving in the right direction. It, it would seem weird to diverse, uh, divorce like the smart people from the people who can turn the smart people's stuff into things that help people. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's like you, you know, you have a great idea, but like, how do you apply it? Um, yeah. Which is why we have Andrews of the world to help. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. We need to get more scientists and business people in the same room talking to each other. There's actually a small, as a, for the listeners, there's a, I mean, not small, but there, there's like a venture capital group that does that. They like, they grab scientists, not like literally, but, and uh, business people and like, they, they pair them up to like find business that way. It's a, it's an interesting model. They're in London. Um, but so like people are like, kind of like listening and like trying new things. So it'll be interesting to see how things are, are trending. Uh, and speaking about trending, uh, where, where do you see like this technology or, or like anything involving this type of, I guess this is an open ended question. How do you see like biotech companies progressing? I hear there's this gray, gray hair, gray hair bias. Like if you don't have gray hair and I don't know how that works for women. Cause like women tend not to gray hair early or something, but like how do how are, how are things trending? More people like yourselves getting into it or, you know, just open question. I can sort of speak to the environment that we're in and we work, we're in St. Louis. We work in an innovation district right off the Washington University School of Medicine called Cortex. I think some of the, there's always, particularly in biotech, there can be a challenge to find really early stage funding. I think as young entrepreneurs, I think we've gotten some pushback at times on our age. I think, yeah, definitely the the gray hair bias. But at the end of the day, speaking from from what we see on a day-to-day basis, we work out of a healthcare life sciences co-working space called Biogenerator, and we are surrounded by tons of young, really excited, really ambitious entrepreneurs who on a day-to-day basis are working really, really hard to solve healthcare's problems. Some people are focused on microbiome, and some people are focused on new therapeutics, and some people are focused on immuno-oncology. But despite the challenges, I think there will always be challenges. I think I get really excited by, despite those challenges, being surrounded on a day-to-day basis by people who are really excited to confront them and sort of are breaking down those barriers. And I think the energy you get from people who are new to the field or on the cusp of the technology, it's so funny because I I tell Andrew about the things that we should bring to our company or the things that we should try or different technique or different protocol. And he asked me, you know, can you go look at the literature and and figure out the best way to do this? And I'm saying, Andrew, this has never been done before. (laughs) We can't we can't go look at the literature for everything. We have to kind of develop it ourselves because we are on the cusp of of genomic analysis and development of diagnostics and and so it's we're the first individuals to see this science we're the first individuals to discover something and i think that tends to happen more in the younger age bracket and i think people who are set in their ways and and set in their clinics and set in their protocols they don't tend to come up with these disruptive technologies as frequently there's there was a, a like a chef chef business chef, but there were like it's, it's, I'm, I'm I don't know why I'm blanking on it. Like it's really really obvious when I remember it. I'll poke myself in the eye for this, but basically they they found that they have like a horizontal organization, not a horizontal like 
horizontal organization chart. So like every now and again, there will be like people who will lead an initiative, but they go back to being equal with everyone else because they, the, the, the hypothesis is that people who get promoted based on what they've done will only want to do what they've done to continue with that trend. So you're like, you're conditioning them to do a certain uh, subset of behaviors that the company has deemed to be successful. But like, then, then like you're saying, Erica, that like kind of like pigeonholes, like you start keep going down that line and, you know, trying new things wasn't rewarded so far. It was just doing the things that they viewed as successful. So like, you know, new people are, that's kind of like the, the job of young people to like go break walls and kind of see what, you know, what, what cracks out. But, um, that's like a, a random, uh, uh, anecdote. The, the, I don't know where my last question was, but so when I, is this here for both of you? I know, uh, Andrew, you were kind of like investment banking and like equity type stuff. And Erica is in an MD PhD program, which sounds kind of intense. The So is this your guys' first business at all? Or like is this, you guys, have either of you had any business previously? This is our first business. My prior work was in investment banking and private equity. Totally, totally different. Very, very Definitely skills I learned that were translatable, but 100% polar opposite. So this was both of our first business. So it's a lot of trial by or trial by fire learning by share or whatever it is. I think I combined a couple of different sayings there. But yeah, you know, we do have a family background. Our, our dad was a healthcare entrepreneur, which was kind of cool. So it's it's easy and nice to have him as a reference. He's, he started a company in the healthcare space 20 years ago. And so we are able to learn a lot from him. And of course, we have peers. But no, this is our first go at it. Well, what are some things that you've, that you've learned or, or that you've had to like struggle through? Like we kind of like talked a little bit about them in a broad sense. So I'm kind of curious, like, of some specific things that you guys have worked through? The thing that we've learned that I think we've gotten better at is having contingency plans for every aspect development. So for example, we're originally collecting samples from one site or we were pursuing collecting samples from one site. We thought we had that completely locked in. And then over the course of two months, we had to go through developing documents and contracts and legal and and things like that. And then at the end of the process, they said, oh, well, we can give you 10 samples in the next three months. And we're just kind of back at ground zero. And so as a result, now every time we want to do a new study or we want to do a new protocol, we kind of map out as many, an exhaustive list of everything we could possibly do from every single angle, and then just start trying a multitude of things and seeing what sticks. And that's, I think, really reduced the total amount of time that that it takes to, to continue on our research. Yeah. And, and I think there's no shortage of things that we've learned. So <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give another one. Get ready for people to say no and things to go wrong a lot. If, if you're raising money, you might have the best idea, the best plan, and you're probably going to get 50 no's before you hear a yes. Something will go very, very horribly wrong and you will question the future viability of your business. I guarantee it. And those are the times to make sure you don't just have your head down and, and you're just plowing forward. You want to be conscious of why someone said no, why things went wrong, but you need to be able to internalize that and and have the determination to go to that 51st investor meeting or spend all night figuring out what went wrong and fix it. And I think that you need if you're going to be in in this type of of business. And I think that's where Andrew and I did well, because I, I don't think at any point over the last three years, both of us have felt that the company was in ruins. There's always one person who feels that way. And and then the other one is is picking the other person up off the floor. So I think having the right people to be your support system and and keep your head straight is really important. Well, it sounds like you guys are a great team and and complimentary in that way. Um, When and this will it would be interesting if this came down to the team dynamic as well when you when you when either of you do feel overwhelmed does it tend to be the other person that kind of like like pokes you in the head and says stop that or like do you have, or is there like uh like basically how do you handle the times that you feel overwhelmed if you feel overwhelmed maybe you're superhuman i'm always overwhelmed <laughs> <laughs> and andrew's always calming me down i i think it depends we tend to and, and this is where I think it's good to have balance. And I think it's good to have different personalities. I think it's good to have the right people in the right roles. For us, we get totally stressed out about different things. We're out raising money. We have a burn rate of 
not that many months. I'm freaking out. And Erica's the one reassuring me, hey, it's going to be fine. Or as we were last night in the lab at 11 p.m. working on something and we and we think something's going wrong or we're worried about the data, Erica's worried. And I have complete confidence that she did it right. And she did. And so I think it has to be a little bit of give and take. And I think doing this, it, it's impossible for anyone to keep an even queue all the time. So it's understanding the other the other people on your team, knowing when they need support and, and being there and kind of playing off each other in that way. It's, it's a question I always like to ask because... I recently heard about one of the astronauts when they first were, you know, launching rockets in the in the 60s, who would take naps when the rocket would go into space, and then like he'd wake up and like, oh, I gotta gotta go go to work now. And I just think like this, clearly he was superhuman. So like for the rest of us mortals, like I just think like what do you what do you do? Because if you if you can't work through it, then you're not going to get through. It. Um, so it's good that you guys have each other. Um, do you do either of you? And I don't know why either of you would feel this way, but you know you're human as well. Do you ever feel like, I think it's called like um, imposter, but uh, like you feel like you're like an imposter, imposter or something like that? It's imposter syndrome. There you go. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Oh, really? I do. do you feel as like a, that? As a matter of fact. Yeah. You, you know, I think it, it, it's actually interesting. I think oftentimes the more knowledgeable you get on something, I think the more you often feel like an imposter until you get super crazy knowledgeable and then you're like a wizard or something. But I think it's impossible not to, especially as a young person, especially as someone who isn't as experienced. I think having a self-awareness, it's really impossible not to feel that way sometimes, especially when you do get a lot of negative feedback. Like I said, whether it's from investors or whether it's from something you planned or a meeting not going as, as well as you thought it would. Absolutely all the time. And it definitely doesn't go away three years in, I can tell you that. I think it's benefit. I mean, I, I feel that way too often. And I think it benefits me because it gives me a little bit of self-doubt or enough self-doubt where I second guess something or triple guess something and check it again and check the data and check the probes. And I, I, today we had to go through a list of genes and there's a lot of them. And Andrew said, I think this is good. And I, I got to check this one more time because you need to, to, if it's all lying on your shoulders and you're about to spend $100,000 on something, having that self-doubt weighing on you is helpful. So yeah, you can't let it get malignant, but it does make you better at your job. I always think that like that feeling that you're not good enough is kind of like, kind of like a challenge. Like I, I take ignorance as a challenge. Like when, and, and maybe like Andrew's the same way. Cause it seems like he's really keen on like absorbing information so he can speak, be knowledgeable of it. But like when, when you don't know something like, it's like the, like the strong urge to <laughs> learn that subject, which is, it's kind of funny because like the more you learn, like the, like Neil deGrasse Tyson said that, the, the more you learn, the more you can trace the outline of your ignorance, like the greater that like surface area becomes because you learn more and there's always more to learn. So then there's always more that you're ignorant of. So it's like this like kind of like uh, like snake that just eats itself forever. Well, it's just the best example of negative reinforcement because it's kind of like when you get in the elevator and you're holding it and, and you know it's going to start beeping and you're freaking out because the elevator is going to start beeping. So you just don't want someone to ask you a question that you don't know the answer. And so that negative reinforcement really forces you to to go learn everything you possibly can that's what it reminds me what about elevators elevators and beeping <laughs> like i think i get the you point know, you're trying to make but i have no idea what the elevator when you it's the it's an example of, of negative reinforcement when you get in the elevator and you're holding it and you don't want it to beep okay you know, in that feeling that's the feeling that you get when you when you know that someone's going to ask you a question about a topic you should know the answer to and you so you have to learn it to make sure you know the answer before they ask you. Okay, now now I get it. For some reason I was just picturing you like pushing a button. <laughs> it's like it was the one thing that was not fitting. So like thank you. Question for both of you. And we're we got a couple of questions left. So this is really fantastic. We're we're getting a lot of great content. I I've been enjoying this conversation. You you guys play off each other very very uh if you had like I don't know the best way to phrase this, but if Andrew, <laughs> if Erica had to take some time off, how would both of you place, like find someone to do what Erica does or like train someone to do what Erica does as effectively to come back? And the same for Andrew. Like, how would you kind of like Manchurian candidate or like make someone replace the other person for a short period of time? The other person would come back. Like, like what type of experiences would you want them to get? What type of skills? Like if you could like build your replacement with the other person helping, like what type of things would you want them to do? or be able to do so they'd be effective while you're gone so the place doesn't burn down. How long are you gone for? 
<laughs> we're gonna need some details here. Yeah, in this hypothetical situation, how long how long is he gone? I mean, how long do you want him gone? I guess he can be gone for a month. Month. Oh my god. And and I don't know if this is an answer to your question, but one thing I have found is that particularly with two of us, we're so immersed in everything that's going on on a day-to-day basis. And a lot of what we talk about are references to things we've been talking about for, for months and years and planning over that time frame. I think in the long run, maybe you find someone, if you're talking about replacing over a short, a short time horizon, it's, it would be really, really difficult because there's just so much going on. A lot of it is really technical that requires technical skills, but also just having been there and been part of the conversation and having experienced all those same things, I, I'm I'm almost at a loss for for how I would even begin to tackle that task. Well, that's some job security right there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that that it's all right. Like it would be, it's hard to replace your brother or sister. So that's- I could speak to the I could speak to the skills that I think that he brings to the table that I I find irreplaceable. So having someone who has the connections in the field that he does having someone who's done transactions with big healthcare companies having someone who is as organized as he is i one of our favorite apps that we use for our company is called wow. wonderless and over the past 3 years we have about 4000 tasks that andrew has single-handedly created assigned to individuals and checked off it's so helpful those are just some of the things that i think he brings to the table that make my day easier and allows me to get the science done and that's what i enjoy doing when it so that's a, that's interesting. The wonderless comment is when it comes to like project managing on like clinical studies and that type of stuff. Is there is there like a method that seems to work? Because I've not run a clinical study, and maybe some of our listeners are ignorant of it as well. And I would I'd love to learn a little bit more about that process. Like what type of like how do you manage that? Because I imagine there's like as you mentioned earlier, Erica, that they're like you have to think of like every single contingency. So like how do you organize it? Our method is we our how I view our method is we kind of conduct several pilot studies prior to initiation of a, a true study, a clinical trial. Um, and it's you know kind of like painting. You know, the Michelangelo wasn't the do one sculpture and that was it. There were, there were several renditions before the final one ended up completed. So we kind of do that same process. So a lot of our pilot studies go wrong, go awry. I can change things in the middle of the pilot study. We write up protocols, but in the end, it it always changes. And then by the time we finish our pilot studies and are moving on to our real study, we try to lock down exactly what we're doing in terms of sample procurement, reagents, conducting the protocol, and then determining who's going to do it and how much it's going to cost. And I think at that point, that's when Andrew really takes over and, and manages kind of the organizational aspect. So I can do a lot of the creative thinking on the front end and he does all the kind of nailing it down on the back end. Yeah. And, it, and it's a lot of, it's the, it's the scientific method, right? We decide what we want to figure out. We design a study that we think will answer a certain question. We then run it. Goes it goes wrong. We figure <laughs> out what we want to do next to validate the next question. We keep meticulous and really detailed notes on each one of those, over time, they continue to add up and aggregate and, and the knowledge base grows and, and you just continue to move forward. And I think that's just a slightly different way to think about it. Are there any books, like if someone like is listening right now, they're like, oh, that's really fascinating stuff. I want to learn about the most, like the cutting edge stuff out there. Are there any books or online resources that you would recommend to people who want to A, learn more about what you guys do or like to get more knowledge about it? And B, maybe learn more about business in general that you recommend, either of you? I'll give you business books. One of my professors at Wharton, full disclosure, I'm, I'm totally obsessed with him. His name's Adam Grant. He has three books out there. They're really about, they're very data-driven, but they're really about people, how we think, our interactions, uh, different types of people. I think they're really, really instructive for business. One's called Give and Take. One's called Originals. And he just came out with a new one called Option B. Those, those are some of my favorite books I've read over the past couple of years. So the things I'd say on the science side for understanding the intersection of science and business, I think Genome Web does a really good job of a couple times a day. They 
put out some headlines that are really interesting and the ones that are pertinent to our company, we click on. But then it's actually surprised me how much the scientific community is plugged into Twitter. So you can always follow Kim Kardashian or (laughs) but you can follow the NIH, you can follow nature, science, and just reading the headlines of some of the articles that they're putting out and clicking on the ones that you find interesting, it's it keeps me up to date on on some of my favorite authors and, and topics. Do either of you have any, speaking of Kim Kardashian, do either of you, to kind of like round you guys out as more than just uh, like B-set, just uh, building things, do you guys have any like guilty pleasures like, like listening to Kim Kardashian type stuff or um, like on Twitter? I really... I really like Fortnite recently. That's been my new my new pastime that I, I do when I want to relax, which is the equivalent to Hunger Games on Xbox. So it's like a game? Yeah, it's an Xbox game. And it's called Fortnite? Fortnite? You've never heard of it? No, and I play games. I don't know. All the rage It's right wonderful. Now. You spawn onto an island with nothing but a pickaxe, and then you have to run around to the various buildings collecting weapons and... The last man standing wins. It's basically Hunger Games in video game format. That's, that's interesting. You enjoy people murdering each other. Um, that, that's, 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 that's a good way of relieving stress. What about you, Andrew? I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure. I'm a, I'm a big Manchester United fan. So whether there's a game at 6 a.m. or 3 p.m. on a weekday, you'll probably find me watching or listening to it in any way I possibly can. I forgot to ask you about soccer. <laughs> I forgot you love soccer. You know, I talk about it at every opportunity, but no one's ever obligated. Yeah, no, I just wanted to because uh, for people, because I wanted, I like to try new things, and I, soccer seems kind of fun. And I've like, I when I watch it, it's like, okay, this isn't boring, which is like my litmus test for whether or not I'll give something my attention. And so I'm just wondering, like, what are for people who are listening and want to give soccer a try? Uh, what what are some good ways to like tap into that? Yeah, well, we got the World Cup coming up, which is equally as sad because, I don't know, for the first time in like 40 years, the U.S. isn't in it, which is a which is a whole separate thing. But all those games will, will be on TV. It starts in June. In 2018, you can basically get anything on the Internet. So all the English Premier League games, you can find a, a live stream on Reddit or something like that. So you search for it, you can find it. Manchester United, I'm assuming that's a U.K. thing, right? It is. Manchester, England. And you guys aren't immigrants. So I'm just wondering, like, how did you imprint on them? Yeah, this is one of those childhood things. So I grew up playing soccer my whole life. It's my favorite sport. But when I was uh, four or five years old, my, my parents went to, to London and, and uh, I was a goalie and they brought me back a Manchester United goalie jersey. And, and ever since, that's been my team. And, and totally coincidentally, about a year ago, I was in Philadelphia just sitting in a bar there, and, and one of the players was there watching a game. So that was a, a personal highlight to uh, to run into one of their players in a bar in Philadelphia. But yeah, ever since the age of four. Did you talk to him, or just like did you, or did you just kind of like watch from afar? I was really, really embarrassed. And one of my friends who had like no skin in the game at all just walked up and was like, hey, my friend's too nervous to come talk to you. It was Ashley Young, by the way, who's still on the team and still playing. But I ended up at that point. I, I was obligated to go over and got a picture with him and talk to him for a while. And so I, I needed the, an assist from a friend on that one. I was too shy. Erica, do you have anything that's like obsessive like Manchester or is it just like Fortnite uh, Hunger Games to the death? I love oh, her dog. Her dog. Definitely her dog. So now I'm obligated to talk about her. Her name is Rubisco, which is. Oh, yeah, the... this is going to be bad. <laughs> We're going to have to cut this part. <laughs> So she's named after the rate limiting enzyme in the Calvin cycle, which is the cycle that fixes carbon to glucose. So it's important for for plants to generate sugars. And she's a mini golden doodle and she just turned one and she's she's my heart. I love her very, very much. I I don't know how to respond to that. That is that is at the same that is at the same time one of the most amazing stories behind a naming of a dog. And at the same time, the most nervous thing I've heard in a very long time. That is fantastic. It all comes full circle. You, you had to anticipate that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's a good thing. Like, I think you got to embrace the nerdiness. Like, you got to embrace your love of <laughs> Manchester United. Like, it's, it's a good thing. I've always wondered, like, some people think their dogs are their children. Or, like, they say, like, this baby is my baby. 
And I always think like, if that's your child, like you probably should see a doctor, but like, like, is that, is that a prevalent concern, Andrew? Like, do you think the dog is? She's my dog, but I'm scared that I'm not going to love my children as much as I love my dog. I just, there's, I don't know if there's enough room. There's it's, just, it's a real fear. There's that's, so much love. That's a real there's fear. So well, it doesn't, when you have kids, doesn't your like brain switch to be more caring to the kid? Like, isn't there like some like. I mean, I hope so, but not when your dog's named after the rate limiting enzyme in the Calvin cycle. Yeah, if you if that if that's bad, you should see what I end up naming my kids. That'll be funny. <laughs> do you know? I, this we're going really yeah. far down this, but like, do you have an idea what you'd name them? So look at the kid before you name it, right? Do you? I don't know. No, I know what I name my kids. It's the names. They got like a one male name, one female name. No. No, I looked at I looked at Ruby and I knew right away that she was a Rubisco. Erica's going to look at her kid and name it on the spot. First word that comes to mind. It's going to be like Glargine or something. No one knows what it is. It's a, it's a, no, I don't know what it is. (laughs) It's a therapeutic that targets type 2 diabetes. It's a type of insulin. (laughs) We're off on a tangent here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. Like it kind of gives people a sense that you're people instead of just like Terminators that beat the crap out of everything in in your way. Um, yeah nerdy people nerdy people are relatable because we're in like this is like the era of the nerds if you ever have kids like someone needs to like update me and like let me know what you you choose on those names well we'll have podcast number two which will be titled and kids names the the naming of of nerdy children it's better than naming it in 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 norway i think and or sweden the the state approves the name of your child so they're not bullied or anything like that and they always have to tell people not to name their kids boo or um or so (laughs) Like Skittles? Yeah, Skittles. Like okay. the candy. I mean, maybe there's like an emotional attachment to that. I don't know. But it's like, you're not, you're not, at least it's science, you know? Like it'll inspire, it'll either really inspire them to love science or make them hate science. So, you know, either way. Well, that's crazy, but I'll keep you updated. Don't worry. That was a, that was a tangent. <laughs> I, I liked it though. Um, for people who would love to like kind of follow you guys over the course of the next three to four years as you're developing, you know, genoscopy. How can people do that? Like, how can people kind of like, because I imagine if I was listening, I'd be like, oh, I want to learn more about those guys, and, well, guy and lady, and, you know, want to keep up with it somehow. So is there a way to do that? Yeah, we have a website, www.genoscopy.com. We also distribute a newsletter periodically. You can sign up for the newsletter down at the bottom of our website homepage. Great way to stay updated. We'll post both things about genoscopy and also interesting things about science. So if people want to just learn more about science in addition to learning more about just us, that is a good place to do it. for joining us today that was erica and andrew barnell founders of genoscopy talking about where they got the idea for the company why they wanted to develop it where the you know the backstory you know we've got a lot of their nerdiness with erica's comments about ruby you got uh andrew's soccer you got you know the business side of a lot of things i think there was a lot in here to enjoy and i hope a lot of you enjoyed it as well you can check the show notes for andrew's email you can send them an email directly Or send me questions and I'll try and get them answered for you. Whichever one makes you happy. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. Tune in every Monday for email blasts if you've signed up for them. Tuesday for new podcast episodes. And Thursdays for new blog content. I will let you know that I'm putting out new timestamp show notes every day now for the past ones. I already have the ones up for Adora and Dom's episodes from last year. And these episodes for today will also have show notes as well for that. So I hope you guys enjoy that. Thank you.